This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr Hugh McKay. He is a social researcher and has written a new book called Australia Reimagined, Towards a More Compassionate, Less Anxious Society. Hello, this is George Megalogenis and you're listening to Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins. Yes, Thanks, George. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with me, Amy Mullins. And that reminds me of a great conversation I had with George Megalogenis last year. I also had a great conversation with Hugh McKay last year. And I'm so excited that he has been able to make it into the studio to talk about his new book, which is called Australia Reimagined Towards a More Compassionate, Less Anxious Society. Hi, Hugh, and thank you for joining us. Good morning, Amy. It's a great pleasure. It's so wonderful to have you here because when I spoke with you last year on the phone, we were talking about an oration that you Mm. uh, gave about how the state of the nation starts in your street and it's all about what you do in your own street, in your own neighbourhood and community and it really is the beginnings of this book. Mm. That's right. That that preparing that oration uh, really did sow the seeds for what what became this new book. Yeah. Mm. And when you gave that oration, what kind of response did you get to the original idea? Um, well, I can only say overwhelming. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was astonished. Uh, I shouldn't have been astonished because I think we're at a very interesting stage in Australia where a lot of people are just waking up to the fact that we've been neglecting our street. We've been mm. neglecting our suburb, our neighbourhood, our local community. We've been focusing on other communities, which are terrific, online communities, workplace communities, friendship circles, all that stuff is important. But there's a magical thing about the neighbourhood, um, which I think we've been overlooking. In fact, uh, I think the, 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 cent- the, the two big facts about contemporary Australia, which, which really are the, 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 the two ideas that this book rests on. One is that we, we have become a more socially fragmented society uh, and there are lots of things contributing to that, mm. r- rate of relationship breakdown, increasing mobility of the population, uh, shrinking households. Every fourth household now contains just one person. Increasing reliance on information technology which seems to bring us together but actually makes it easier than ever to stay apart. Uh, So all of those things contribute to uh, more social fragmentation and the greater risk of of social isolation. There, there are, mm. there are, and there are consequences of that, of course, for our mental health. There's a, a, a senior leading American psychologist last year at the annual convention of the American Psychological Association said that social isolation is now a greater threat to public health than obesity. So that's the price we're paying. And I, I mean, so, so one of the facts about us is we're more socially fragmented. The other fact about us is we're more anxious. Mm. We're more depressed. Um, we're more emotionally insecure. And those two things are inextricably linked. I mean, if you, if you, if you fragment a society, if people become more concerned about themselves as individuals and have less of a sense of themselves as members of local neighbourhoods and communities, 
Uh, well, because we're herd animals, uh, being cut off from the herd is is dangerous for our mental health. And so make us a more fragmented society and what will happen will become a more anxious society and we have an epidemic yes. of anxiety right now. Two million people, according to Beyond Blue, two million people last year were suffering from anxiety disorders and another two million either depression or some other form of mental illness. That, that's a, if, if these illnesses were visible... Mm. Uh, we'd be much more concerned about how to how to address the problem, but they're silent and invisible. Yes, well, because it's experienced as a very isolating and lonely illness. Yes, a lot of people can't even admit to themselves or perhaps to others that they're yes. suffering from something that might be anxiety or depression. Yes, that's right. It's it, there's a real there's a real uh, vicious circle in this because. If we become a bit more fragmented, if we lose the sense of being integrated with a neighbourhood or a community, then we start to feel more socially isolated and more anxious. And the more anxious we feel, exactly as you say, Amy, the less likely we are to connect, the more, the more likely we are just to sort of go into a little huddle and become preoccupied with ourselves. So, I mean, that's, that's another consequence of of a more socially fragmented society, even if it doesn't get to the stage of an anxiety disorder, we do tend to be a more selfish, more self-absorbed society concerned about our material prosperity, uh, our personal happiness, not so concerned about the needs of people around us. Yes, there was a a really great quote that I bolded in my notes because it was so striking to me, so I want to read it out. Uh, You say that anxious people are more likely to become obsessive about their own personal comfort and well-being, their own personal rights and entitlements and their own personal priorities. Correspondingly, they are likely to become less concerned about the rights, the needs, the priorities or the well-being of others and less trusting of them. Anxiety leads us to confuse self-indulgence with control. And if you can't control the big picture stuff, I'll concentrate on the stuff I can control. Mm. And this is not suggesting that people with anxiety are horrible people. This is just Mm. a natural consequence of having something which does mean that one focuses inwards, that one, as you say, cocoons oneself to protect oneself from Mm. things that are isolating, that do induce anxiety within you. But the more that you are feeling isolated, the more and more anxious you feel, as Mm. you say, it has Mm. that cyclical effect that Mm. means it's so hard to break. Yes. And what are some of the things that you think break that cycle? I think uh, this whole problem is a wake-up call to those of us who are not suffering from anxiety, who are not, for example, living alone. And, and people who live alone aren't necessarily lonely. Lots of people love living alone. Yeah. Um, but the risk of loneliness is increased, mm. particularly among older people, if they find themselves unexpectedly living alone through bereavement or other circumstances. So I think, I think there's, a, there's a huge responsibility. Once we realise that we are in fact, a social species, that we we actually do need each other, that we're all in this thing together. So we might as well figure out how to get along, how to make these communities work, because we all benefit from that. I mean, we we need to recognise my 
my health really does depend on the health of the neighbourhoods and communities that I belong to. So I think we've got to start reaching out more to people who are on the fringe, in the margins, especially people who are living alone or Mm. suffering in some way. Now, there's some responsibility on people who are themselves isolated because the best way to solve the problem of social isolation is to solve someone else's problem of social isolation. Yeah. Um, and, but, but it's hard. It's hard to break the cycle. And I think the rest of us have to move in and be a bit more open, be a little bit more accessible um, to people who are potentially lonely. I think the magic ingredient, the word we haven't mentioned, Amy, but the magic ingredient in all of this is compassion. Um, and it, it en- ended up well, as, as you said, in the, at the top of the conversation. The subtitle of the book is Towards a More Compassionate, Less Anxious Society because I think that there are lots of ways of dealing with anxiety but probably the most effective antidote is compassion because compassion – and by the way, I should say what I mean by compassion mm. because I'm not talking about a sort of bleeding heart, emotional yeah. – uh, f- strong feelings of love and affection towards someone in need. I think it's got absolutely nothing to do with affection. It's nothing to do with our emotional state. I think compassion is like a like a cool mental discipline that any of us who've understood what it means to be human can adopt. And it's the discipline of saying, because you're human and we're all human, the only rational way for us to treat each other is kindly and with respect. That's what I mean by compassion. Now, if that's our modus operandi, it does change everything. It it does mean that uh, we're not going to be isolated. We're not going to be utterly preoccupied with whether we can get that outdoor sink built in the barbecue area, which seems to be the latest sort of high (laughs) high fashion uh, um, compensation for our anxieties. Um, But but all all that's required is that we say, well, whoever I meet, including people I don't like much and including people I definitely don't agree with about religion or politics or music or whatever it might be, but we're all human. I mean, on the surface... It looks as though the most interesting thing about you and me is the differences between us. But actually the most significant thing about you and me is that we're both human. We have our common humanity and we are far more similar than we are different, even though there's a big age gap and maybe lots of other gaps if we started exploring each other's lives. But all of that is relatively insignificant compared with the fact that we are humans at the moment sitting in this studio together but sharing this planet. Uh, and, and what that meant, if, if, if the species is to survive and if local neighbourhoods and communities are to thrive, this is, this is like the high-octane fuel that drives the machinery of social integration, social cohesion. Mm. And it requires a conscious effort, doesn't it? it? Yes. I think that's a really important point, Amy, because when you look at all the ways in which our society is changing at the moment, most of the social changes are pushing us towards fragmentation, uh, uh, encouraging 
rampant individualism and materialism, you do have to resist it. You do mm. have to say, hang on. And often parents start to see the effect of this on their kids and that's a trigger for them to say, oh, I don't know if I like the way this is going. Uh, maybe we need to handle things a bit differently. But yeah. it does require it, it does require a conscious effort to say, no, remember compassion. Remember that that's, that's what's going to save us because if, if we become more and more and more fragmented, more and more selfish and preoccupied with our own concerns and so on, it's a pretty ugly society we'd be heading into. It sure is. And you do say that some of these areas of fragmentation are really areas that have become kind of a coping mechanism for people. Some of the things like materialism, mm. like, as you said, focusing on the smaller things that one can control, like, as you've written, finding the right yoga teacher, yes. getting a, a good sink for the outdoor yes. area. You know, The these, perfect latte. Exactly. The quest <laughs> for that, um, you know, Instagramming the perfect latte is a higher challenge. I mean, these are things which it's easier to focus and be preoccupied by the smaller more minute things that we think we can control that will provide us with short-term happiness or gratification. But it's a bit more confronting to think about the bigger picture. And you highlight that there is a bit of a disconnect between the way people see their own lives versus how they see Australia and how we're going as a nation. Yeah. I think that's a deeply disturbing feature of contemporary reality but it does i mean you you put it beautifully then i mean it does actually follow from all this other stuff um yes some research that's been done over the last couple of years shows that when australians are asked how they feel about their own lives and their own future the majority are optimistic when they're asked about how australia's going and australia's future the majority are pessimistic now how can how can that be you know how can you think well, I'm okay yeah. if you're thinking actually our society is not okay. So I think part of the, part of the challenge, and this is an, it's another aspect of the discipline of compassion, I suppose, but part of the challenge is to say, look, okay, there are big, there are big issues in Australia at the moment. We're, we're losing faith in our major institutions, politics, um, the church, the banks, big business, professional sport, the mass media, the trade unions. Generally speaking, people don't have the same level of respect or trust uh, towards those sort of institutions that we once had. So we could be wringing our hands about that. That's another subject we could talk about. But, Or we could be wringing our hands about youth unemployment or the plight of asylum seekers in offshore detention centres or Aboriginal reconciliation. There are lots of big things um, that need attention. And you and do say they actually make us quite anxious too. Yeah, they, they contribute to say nothing of global warming yeah. <laughs> and the degradation of the planet. Um, part of the problem is we think about all those big things and we can then easily say, as, as you suggested a moment ago, it's all too hard. Mm. Let's narrow the focus. Let's turn the focus inward. You know, what, what, what can I do to increase my pleasure uh, or to make sure that my kids are in the best school or that I have found the perfect latte or the perfect yoga teacher, etc., etc. And I'm not mocking those things. These are all natural responses. But that's all looking in the wrong place. 
you know, th- those things are not... It, it's true that we can't single-handedly change the world or transform federal politics or any of that. The big breakthrough, I think, comes when we say, well, partly because we're not getting the sort of leadership we might want from political or religious or commercial or cultural leaders, actually, it's up to us. It really, as as we said in our conversation last year, the state of the nation really does start in your street. It is no significant social movement ever started by someone at the top waving a magic wand. Well, not a good started. one. <laughs> no. Perhaps the authoritarian well, ones. Oh, sure. Yes, we've, yeah. seen, we've seen some of the extremes exactly. uh, that have happened like that. But generally speaking, a positive social movement, maybe even a social revolution, starts with a few people saying it actually could be different, you know. If we started living around here uh, as, as if this is the kind of community we want it to be... That's the kind of community it will become. If we think neighbours should know each other, we better make sure we know our neighbours. If we think people should smile and say hello when they pass each other in the street, well, maybe I'd better start setting the example rather than just going with the flow. There's mm-hmm. a, a fascinating um, story has come out of the UK. Uh, unfortunately, I only learned about this after I'd finished the book. <laughs> um, but in the town of Froome, spelled F-R-O-M-E, if people want to look it up, um, in Somerset, a GP uh, came to realise that many of the health issues that her patients were suffering were due to their social isolation um, and feeling of exclusion. And so she got together with the local council and just a few other community leaders and they launched this thing, which sounds very clunky, but they launched the Compassionate Froom Project. And three years after they launched it, uh, a study was done to see what the impact of it was. And across most health indicators, there had been improvements. The most dramatic improvement was also the most unexpected, which was that emergency hospital admissions went down by 17% in that three-year period in Froome, while across the county of Somerset, they went up by 28%. Now, what was this miraculous intervention? What, what, What was compassionate Froome all about? Well, it was really creative, extraordinary stuff like reach out to your neighbours. Yeah. <laughs> make, if someone's living alone, make sure you go and knock on their door occasionally see if they're okay. Mm. Uh, get connected. Join a choir, a, a community garden, a men's shed, a book club, anything to get to get to be become part of networks within the community so you're alert to what's going on. Um, be the sort of person who does smile and say hello to strangers at the bus stop or anyway, this might just be the moment when that person needed someone to smile at them and acknowledge their existence when they were perhaps feeling a bit bleak or even a bit desperate. So it wasn't some radical thing. It was just let's let's turn Froome into the kind of town that we'd all like to live in because it'll its hallmark will be compassion. 
a spirit of kindness and, and respectfulness towards each other. And, you know, the effects are um, dramatic. Uh, the health effects, you know, it's, mm. not, it's not just people thinking, oh, this is nice, but actual health indicators have improved. So, you know, this is, you, you, could, you could have compassionate X, Y or Z wherever you live without necessarily giving it a label, but just a group of people. So, and there are, I mean, in the book I've, 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 I've described nine or ten cases where people are doing wonderful stuff all over Australia and in some other countries that I've, little initiatives that I heard about. But just doing doing things that have the effect of reminding people that they are neighbours. It's a special category. You know, it's not like family, it's not like friend, it's not like colleague. But we are all neighbours simply because we live in a human setting, in a social context. And that creates an obligation on us and we pay a price when we don't discharge that obligation. Yes. And one of the things that resonated with me is that you said this idea of compassion isn't about the idea that we need to just donate more more money to charity or only focus on those who are impoverished, although they are one element we should certainly Mm. focus on. As you say, it's about just saying hello to Mm. a neighbour or if they're unwell and have uh, the flu to make sure that they're doing okay or get Mm. them a meal, find out if they need help to get to the doctor. Simple things that make a huge difference and presumably have a ripple effect because it's paying it forward. I often do see that that does that kindness goes forward to others. Yes, yes. Ripple effect is a lovely term, isn't it? Um, Because it's a nice picture Mm. in in your mind of how the ripples do go out in a pond. Um, I think that's true. I think, you know, the the ripple effect, the multiplier effect, acts of kindness do multiply. When we start setting the example of being concerned about other people, being respectful, being more charitable in our general attitude, people pick up on that because we recognise that as the good the good stuff about being human. I mean, we can also be pretty ugly. We can be very competitive and violent and vengeful and all that terrible stuff we're capable of, but we don't admire that in each other. What we admire is goodness. We admire uh, the, the positive stuff. So setting the example is a, is, a, is a, you know, it does register. There's a bit of inspiration that mm. goes on. Oh, I, I noticed Amy was chatting to that. You know, she seemed to be bringing home the shopping for that old lady who lives at the end of the street. That's nice. You know, I should do more of that sort of stuff. Mm. And it makes me think of my own situation and others that I've observed in the past and you do say that we shouldn't tend towards nostalgia but I do sometimes think that there are some traditions that would be great to bring back Mm. not because we should live in the past but because Mm. they were just great things and you did bring up one of them in the book which I thought was really important is the idea of having street parties Mm. and having occasions where Mm. we all get together and obviously you don't have to sit on the road to create a traffic obstruction (laughs) but these are really simple events and moments that one can easily organise to get to know your neighbour more and because it seems that um, we don't really know our neighbours as well. I used to, we were very close friends to my neighbours in a coastal town and we're still best friends with them even though they've moved to another town. Um, So we have that really close connection but the 
connection we now have, you know, in this 21st century is definitely not as close I've, mm. re- I've recognised. And it's those mm. really person-to-person mm. interactions that mm. I've noticed have become less and less frequent. Mm. So I wanted to draw on some of the research that you highlighted from Edith Cowan University which found that only 35% of Australians say they trust their neighbours. And you say, well, surely this doesn't mean that 65% of our neighbours are untrustworthy. Of course, that's right. It's highly unlikely that that would be the case. So, I mean, that is a a really stark figure, though, that we don't trust our neighbours, that we think, you know, we have to lock the doors, we are more alarmed about security, which Mm. does increase anxiety, Mm. just even having heightened security measures creates Mm. that level of fragmentation, as you say. Yes. What are some of the things you think that could enhance our connection beyond those person-to-person interactions? Do you think things like street parties, things like Mm. um, organised, I guess, groupings and activities could be... The things that we used to do perhaps hmm. might be useful now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, your your little alert about the dangers of nostalgia, that's appropriate. We don't want to think, oh, gosh, life was wonderful in the 70s or the 50s or, you know, gosh, I was there in the 50s. It yeah. wasn't wonderful. There were lots of things wrong. And even you were though saying there were lots of things right. alcohol abuse and yeah. a whole range yeah. of things that were yeah. perhaps more Women hidden. being second-class citizens, lots of things wrong. Mm. But... I agree with you. We don't have to... It's not nostalgia to look at some aspects of our past and say, actually, that was very important for building the level of confidence, trust, comfort, security in local neighbourhoods. And why don't we bring that into 2018? It doesn't mean we want to wind the clock back. It just means that was good. We've lost it. Let's bring it back. So th- this, of course, doesn't mean I'm not suggesting. I mean, you, you were lucky that you had neighbours who became such close friends. I'm not suggesting that neighbours have to be f- best friends. In fact, one of the things most people say about well-functioning neighbourhoods is we're not in each other's pockets. Mm. We respect each other's privacy, but we know those people are there when we need them. And it's very nice to be able to say good day when you're walking uh, to the shops and you see a familiar face. So, yes, things like uh, occasional street parties, not not once a week, no. but maybe a couple of times a year. Um, uh, th- uh, things like uh, going habitually to the local coffee shop uh, becoming a regular, so you start to see other people that you recognise. Joining in local activities, local libraries have become a tremendous community hub for this sort of thing. They don't just run school; they don't just they're not just places to read and borrow books. They run school holiday programs for kids and adult education classes and all sorts of things. Uh, get involved with that. Do join a choir or you know, some other local book clubs, some other local community things so that you feel as though you are part of this functioning community and you're then alert. Uh, you can't help knowing when when needs arise, uh, when people will need your attention. So, and and even the street party can be done on a, on a more um, relaxed basis. One of the things that I... Um, came across in researching the book was um, uh, in a suburb of Sydney, a a woman who'd moved in with her family, had moved into an apartment block and she realised 
no one in the apartment block seemed to be speaking to each other. They, they, you know, they kind of avoided each other in the car park and they didn't... When she started talking to people, she realised they didn't know other people in the street. So she, with a couple of friends, just put a little note under everyone's door and a sign in the local shop windows saying, we're going to have a picnic on a particular Sunday a couple of weeks hence. Uh, just bring your own food and drink and we'll just get to know each other. And 40 or 50 people just from those couple of streets uh, joined in and the numbers keep growing and they're doing it once a month now. Uh, and they're talking about having, you know, kids doing musical items or people giving little talks about things they're interested in. It's become a bit of a local institution. Really simple and no-one's obliged to go and you can come when you like and leave when you like. But it just means there's a transformation because those people now, they recognise each other and it's not only each other. That It's, it's like the ripple effect. Uh, once you feel as though you're part of this community, then even when you see a stranger, you're much more likely to say hello. Mm. And I think it was great that you raised and you've referenced now that we are organically linked to the whole and that the society's problems are our problems. Society's mm. pains are our pains. Yes. They're shared struggles. Yes. Yes. And this idea of a communitarian way of being is something which is not foreign in other cultures and it wasn't that foreign in Australia but no. it seems so much more foreign now. Yes. yes how right. did it happen? Like, I mean, I know you've listed these kind of fragmentations but how did mm. we kind of sleepwalk into it? Because it feels like it just happened. Yes, well, it did and sleepwalked into it is a very accurate way of describing it because most of the changes that have been reshaping our way of life are not things that were done to us, they're things we've done. I mean, we have become more mobile. We're moving house on average once every six years. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why we do that. Um, we've, we've got almost universal car ownership. It's all very comfortable, convenient. We come and go in our car, which means there's less footpath traffic. Mm. We didn't think of that. Um, the divorce rate, about between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages are ending in divorce. Now, none of those people who are divorcing would want to get the divorce rate down because they want to split. Mm. So they're going to split. So we just have to recognise there are consequences of that yeah. for their families, for their friendship circles and for the communities they're moving in and out of and for kids if there are kids. A million yeah. dependent kids now live with just one of their natural parents and they're half of them are involved in regular migrations between the two parents. So yeah. that, that's all of those things um, are, are things we've done. Uh, we've become busier. You know, who, yeah. I mean, we've, we've enshrined busyness as a kind of virtue. You know, we, we even greet each other differently now. We say, how are you going, Amy? Busy? As though, are you dead or are you busy? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Even people who've yeah. retired, yeah. it's now absolutely obligatory. You've got to say, oh, I'm so busy, I don't know how I ever found time to go to work. Yes. Well, this yeah. is crazy stuff because if we're really so busy, obviously we, we don't have the time or the energy to devote to community engagement. And the other big one in all this, of course, is information technology, which we've mm. embraced. It hasn't been forced on us. You know, we've only had the smartphone for the last 10 years. 
Um, but look how it's changed our lives because we've so enthusiastically, voraciously consumed it yeah. without recognising what it might do to us. So all these things are positive, but the cumulative effect can be at least partly negative. So in the case of the smartphone and information technology in general, we just have to realise that the heavier your use of these devices, the more likely you are to feel lonely and anxious, which is very paradoxical, but that's what the research is now telling us. Mm. Because, of course, we're taking human presence out of all that exchange of information and that's... In the long haul, that turns out to be bad for us. Well, you do raise an excellent point, which is that body language and particularly eye contact mm. is just so vital. And I think we forget yeah. that even just talking on the phone, although we have a, a vocal tone and timbre that people can pick up on, mm. you're still missing out on really important things like eye contact yes. and face-to-face interaction. Yes. And I just feel like that's something that I miss a lot mm. with, you know, my friends. I certainly know what they're doing in their jobs on yes. LinkedIn. I know, you know, that they just had a baby because they've got pictures on Facebook. <laughs> and I can tell that they just went on a hike somewhere beautiful in uh, Anglesey or Lawn. But I don't really know how they are no. and whether they're doing well because I haven't been able to check in with them personally Mm. and had that really nice interaction. And Mm. I thought to myself, how do we maintain and establish relationships, not just with our neighbours, but make sure that we don't lose our relationships with our friends and also our families? Because Mm. if we don't have that strong unit that we feel supported, then we do feel more anxious, as Mm. you say, that we are less compassionate then to others Mm. like our neighbours. It's all a kind of uh, cycle, as you said. Mm. It all affects each other and it's a bit like a domino effect. Yes, yes, uh, it absolutely is. And once you realise what you've just realised about your friends, I mean, knowing, seeing on Instagram the new baby is not like cuddling the new baby. No. And seeing a wonderful walk Uh, in lawn is not like being on it or even catching up for coffee afterwards and saying, well, tell us what it was really like. You know, the photos were great, but photos aren't always the full story. Um, So I think, like, that's dawning on you. It's starting Mm. to dawn on a lot of us, I think, that that this this horse has bolted um, and we can't turn the clock back. We're not going to abandon the technology, but we can start to live a bit differently with it use it as a as a slave rather than a master and make sure it, it occasionally just monitor <clears throat> what's happened in the last week how much of my non-working time has been spent with a device compared with face to face with other human beings and if that's getting out of balance then that should the red flag should go up and we should say hang on uh, let's let, let, say to your friends, you know, let, no, no more. I'm not going to send you another text. I'm not going to do another no. post until we've met. So when are we going to meet? Yes, exactly. And you say that, you know, we have a two people in a household often. Um, they may have children. They are both working. 
And so they have less time to devote to many things. Mm. So their time is spread very thinly. It means that you need to make more conscious choices and prioritise your time around this kind of framework. If you value compassion, if you value mental health, if Mm. you value a society that isn't based on economic uh, KPIs, but upon, you know, those sometimes immeasurable factors like feeling connected and valued and heard Mm. and just supported, Mm. then this is something that we can all do Mm. and it's really simple. Yes, yes. Uh, It's so simple to describe. It just needs, you know, we just need to get the momentum going. And I really hope we do. And one of the things I wanted to... Uh, finish this interview on was to think back about some of those great things like the street party but also like those tidy towns initiatives like keep australia beautiful you were talking about people in the book who would just go around with the rubbish bag when they were walking the dog and pick up the bits of rubbish because they wanted to live in a town that was really nice and tidy you know to take that initiative to not wait for politicians to fix our lives because they're clearly not going to yes and if we wait it's just going to be too late that's right. In fact, I think you could say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, recommend this as a long-term thing, but at least in the short term, I think you could say our feelings of disillusionment and disappointment in leaders, particularly political leaders, could actually be quite good for us because it leads us to say, well, actually it is up to us. If we want society to feel a bit different from the way it feels, let's start making that happen. Exactly. It's really, um, I don't like the word empowering because it's a bit uh, lame in a way, but it's very, it does feel like we have the power to affect change. And we do. We absolutely Mm. do. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a great reminder. Mm. Thank you, Hugh, for joining me. And it's really a fantastic book. I'm just so glad that you've written it and been able to explain what's behind it to everyone here. Thank you very much, Amy. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. That was social researcher and author Dr Hugh McKay, AO, and he has written a book, Australia Reimagined, towards a more compassionate, less anxious society, and it's out through Pan Macmillan, Australia. You are tuned to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.